Hello and welcome to the CBO Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Donna Sheely, and happy to have you with us for another episode today. Today, we are speaking with Jim Mateo. He is the Vice President for Finance and Treasurer of Princeton University. Hello, Jim, and welcome. Thank you, Donna. It's great to be with you today. Great to have you. So, Jim, tell us your journey on becoming a CBO and now at an Ivy League institution. Yeah, thanks, Donna. So the journey is probably not dissimilar from a lot of people who made their way from corporate into higher ed. But I began in higher ed in 2005, started at the University of Virginia, and didn't come to higher ed with any intention or master plan. Just there was a nice opportunity, and I took advantage of it, and it really worked out. And came to higher ed to uh, start a treasury organization at the University of Virginia. And what I learned right away was that higher ed was very different from what you'd find in a corporate setting, which I think most people who work in corporate would acknowledge. And not for the typical reasons you'd expect. So most people will cite the time it takes to accomplish things, the amount of consensus that needs to be built, the relationships that need to be uh, put together as well. But what really struck me with higher ed was the welcoming nature of the organization and the industry. Also, that I think employees in higher ed are generally looking for something different. So if you're on the corporate side, maybe it's salary or maybe it's position. Or I think in higher ed, I was shocked by the number of people who were engaged and kind of had a passion around the mission, right? The ability to contribute to something that's meaningful. And that struck me as a really great place and one that I found was a place I wanted to be. So found my way there to the University of Virginia, spent 14 years there, kind of building a treasury organization and over time expanding different responsibilities and and found, at least for myself, that it was a, an environment that I feel like I, I sh- was able to strive in a greater way than I would have in corporate. So I'd started my career in corporate right out of college, spent some time as an internal auditor, uh, spent time in finance and the treasury function, and loved the work. It was really exciting. Was at a, a public utility, which then became a power company that had undergone significant deregulation, which really expanded kind of the scope and nature of what they did and made it really engaging and exciting. So, you know, going from a regional utility to a company that was owning, you know, power plants in South America and in Europe and, um, you know, dealing with things that a, a typical small regional utility wouldn't deal with gave me a chance to really broaden my experience and growth. Uh, but then realized, you know, kind of uh, at some point early on in the career that uh, one, you know, maybe that wasn't the right place for me for a number of reasons. Uh, one being that it was a really uh, good place to work, uh, one of the few large companies in that area which meant that very few people left. So you kind of rose to a point and you were stuck in some ways. And then, you know, found my way to higher ed because of a great opportunity at Virginia where they were experiencing some deregulation of their own, giving uh, them some autonomy as a state agency. And so a lot of what I did on the utility side in terms of leveraging new opportunities. I had a chance to do that at Virginia. Uh, and, and I think much to the benefit of Virginia and kind of where they are now, they took full advantage of that new autonomy from the state and really used it in a way to kind of grow the organization. Um, so loved my time at UVA. And, you know, I would get, I think a lot of people get calls from recruiters. I'd get calls from recruiters and they'd be like, hey, we have this great CFO opportunity in Minnesota. Would you like to come to Minnesota? 
nothing against Minnesota, but right. the answer was pretty much, you know, no thanks. I'm right. kind of happy where I am and I love Virginia and all's good. Until, you know, an opportunity like Princeton comes along and it's like, oh, well, well, Princeton, right? That's not quite Virginia. It's a little more north and it's colder, but heck, it's Princeton. Princeton, yeah. Uh, I took a really hard run at that. And, you know, as, as we know, it worked out extremely well. So, you know, sitting here at Princeton, um, one, kind of appreciating the opportunity of where I am, a broader portfolio. This is my step into the CBO role. Um, and I think I realized a few things that one, I don't think, I don't think any of us are ready for that step up to CBO, right? We come with certain background and experience, but none of us have all that experience or knowledge. I think what we are looking for is how can our existing talents be utilized by a new organization when we step into it? And probably more importantly, how do we work within that culture? And can we see ourselves in that culture? Can the people hiring you see you within that culture? That allows them to believe that, listen, we can we can hire this person who may not have all the experience they need, but they have core things that we value. They have an approach that we think fits well with our organization and culture. And you know, in a lot of ways, I would bet you know, 90% of the CFOs, somebody's making a, a bet, an investment that they think this person has potential. And I think that's some of what happened at Princeton, where they probably liked my background. They probably thought I'd be a nice guy to work with. And they made some small bet on my potential going forward. And so that's how I got to where I am now as a, a CFO at, at Princeton. So if you had to name maybe two or three core things that you think a CBO or someone who's becoming a CBO would need, what are some of those core things that you would, yeah, that you would say? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And I think we, of course, technical skills, right? So people, I think in some ways, overly focus on the technical skills. But you do need to come with some strong business background, right? Whether your business is through the budget office or your business is through treasury like me or an accountant, right? Everybody kind of grows up at a certain point in the organization. Uh, but beyond that point, right, how is your role expanding beyond your place in the organization? So I was a treasurer at UVA. That didn't mean I didn't get involved with our foundations or ERM or other items. Do you have the ability to expand beyond the role that's been assigned to you. I think if you can show that, that then gives you maybe step one in terms of being able to kind of step into a CBO role and expand into that. Second, I would say is, you know, there, there's a quality of a, I'll call it a team player, right? I think many of us, by the time we get to a point where it's, we're being considered for a CBO role, we have reputations. People kind of know us. We've made a network. And are those reputations one of, this is a person who is collaborative and easy to work with, and really mission-driven, or is it one of, this is a person who has maybe a bit of an ego or has other in, kind of intentions? And I think that carries and probably precedes you into a role. I think finally is, you know, what are your softer skills? And, and we all acknowledge them and talk about them. We probably don't spend enough time on them. So, you know, your ability to present, your ability to speak, to communicate with people, to listen, to uh, crystallize thoughts, to think strategically, to work with your peers in a way that you understand what they're trying to accomplish and how your work fits in um, is something that isn't always at the forefront during the interview process, but quickly becomes a very important item once you're in role. So what was what is one of the biggest challenges that you had when you transitioned from UVA to Princeton or if anything, maybe you just had some surprises as, as it might be a better word than challenge. But uh, tell us something about that transition from UVA to Princeton. 
Uh, you know, there are a number of challenges, right? So I think there's similarities between the schools. So for instance, they're both, you know, UVA being a public school, Princeton being a private, I think are both considered, you know, top, you know, one of the top schools in their categories. But in terms of the nature of the place, much, much different, right? UVA is larger uh, in terms of student body, in terms of employee, in terms of schools and a medical center and a health system, uh, in terms of how they're managed, right? So at Princeton, it's a very, it's a smaller experience. It is a liberal arts school. People don't think of it that way, but it is a liberal arts school. It looks more like a small liberal arts school than it does a UVA. So there's a way of things getting done that are different, right? Um, there's also not the involvement of the state, right? UVA being a state entity, there are responsibilities that come with being a state entity. Uh, and at Princeton, it's a private entity, which means Princeton is focused primarily on Princeton. Not that it's not concerned with its role in the state, but it is not a state entity. And so, you know, that changed as well. And then just kind of how an organization financially functions. I think at UVA, it's a it's more decentralized in terms of the roles of the different schools. And at Princeton, it's a very it's much more a centralized function. So, you know, the, the changes were a few, right? One is um, you know, coming into an Ivy League school, I had my own conceptions about what that meant and what it looked like. Uh, many of those were wrong. Okay. A few were right, but many were wrong. Right? It, it is, you know, like many of the schools I've I've known, which are, you know, uh, fantastic people, smart, welcoming, all focused on the same thing, highly supportive of each other, which really surprised me quite a bit. And uh, I was thrilled by that. And so I think it it's uh, Princeton, I would say the probably the biggest difference besides the structure between UVA and Princeton is it being a smaller school means there is a, a lot more. Uh, points of engagement. I probably sit on, I don't know, 30 plus committees, Wow! which I think most people would, you know, bristle at, but yet there's a, there's a bit of a method and a magic to that in that, you know, being in so many different committee meetings with the same people discussing different topics helps to create those connections with people and the connections of ideas and efforts across the university. So, you know, rarely is something pop up that I haven't heard about through a peer or a committee. And it's a much more connected way to operate. Now, not all schools can operate like that, but Princeton can because of its size. And I think it takes advantage of that. So what are some, you don't have to tell us all 30, but what are some of the committees that you are on and what is under your umbrella at at Princeton University? Yeah, so um, I'll start with under my umbrella. So under my umbrella is the accounting area, the treasury area, financial IT, the budget office. Uh, we have an administration group. We have the risk management group. And we have a number of other groups as well. Uh, we also provide financial services across the organization. Um, so it's a broader portfolio than I was used to before I stepped into the CBO role. Um, you know, that, that responsibility and that role engages me across the university with many different people and in many different committee structures. So I, I won't list all 30. I couldn't remember all 30 if I tried, <laughs> but, you know, uh, committees around uh, operating budgets, capital budgets, benefit plans, planning groups, investment committees, you know, as long as there's kind of financial space and con a conversation to be had, I find myself on those committees. And so uh, part of the challenge, I think, that any new CBO faces is your time is being demanded in many more places. How do you manage your time in a way that you can dedicate it 
those places that deserve the most attention that you think need the most attention? And how do you rely on your team to make sure that they can address a lot of the other things that need to get done as well? So I think, you know, in terms of changes uh, for me in making the jump, it wasn't just a school change, it was a responsibility change. And I would say one of the biggest ones was how do you learn to divvy up your time appropriately? And how do you, more importantly, identify where that time needs to go? Yeah, that's that's really huge. So what would you say are the two most important right now? Because I know they change financial issues confronting your institution at this time. Yeah, that's a great question. So we are focused on a few things, right? I think like any school, we are kind of looking to advance our strategic priorities. And one of those areas we're advancing is expansion of the undergraduate student body. So we just recently completed two new residential colleges um, that are going to allow us to add 500 students or about 10% of our student body over the next four years. So there's a lot involved with that. And that's garnered a lot of our attention. So from a capital perspective, how do we finance and build these new facilities from an operating perspective? How do we make sure we're providing the right services, support for students, faculty growth? And that's consumed our attention as well. So that's been kind of a comprehensive effort in terms of focusing our financial efforts uh, over the past few years and actually going forward. And I think one other place that we've spent quite a bit of time thinking about is, especially from a financial perspective, how do we help advance what I'll call excellence and equity at Princeton? Uh, I think many of our schools have focused quite a bit on equity and probably have really sharpened our focus coming out of the uh, summer of kind of racial reckoning of 2020, where we want to realize, you know, what are we doing and how can we do more? And I think from a financial perspective, there's a number of things in terms of our control of resources we can do to advance equity and excellence at Princeton. And not to get into too many details, but I think what's important to us is when we think about, you know, student body, right? How do we make sure we're attracting the best talent we can from all different aspects and places uh, across the country and across the world? Do we have the right investment in access and affordability? Um, and we think about how we spend our resources with groups like vendors, right? How do we make sure we're being inclusive and making sure the supplier diversity is an important part of what we do. And so, you know, we want to make sure our investments are advancing those two things, not just, you know, when it comes to the things that finance controls necessarily, but across the board at Princeton. And I think at any school, right, there's mission-driven things we want to accomplish. Uh, I think all of us are focused on how do we make our institutions more excellent and more equitable. And that's a place where we spend quite a bit of time redesigning process, making investments of funds, and really channeling a lot of our financial effort. So let's go back a little bit and talk about mentorship. Um, talk to us a little bit about any mentors in your life, and then talk to us about how you're mentoring others with all your experience. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Donna. So I, I could speak to many mentors, but let me focus on the higher ed mentors. If it's okay, I'll, I'll name some names because these people deserve to be named. So when I came to higher education, I was hired by the CFO at UVA. Her name was Yokesan Reynolds. And Yokesan uh, was a fantastic boss and taught me a number of things about what it means to work in higher education. So I come from corporate, and the design in corporate is pretty much profit-driven, protect a protective culture. When I was at uh, the corporate uh, company, one of the departments we had was a competitive intelligence department, which was designed to make sure we weren't sharing anything with anybody we shouldn't be sharing it with. Wow. <laughs> and coming to higher ed, it's something like, oh, no, we share everything with everybody, right? Pretty much, right? But we share a lot with people. So I can call up my counterpart at, you know, 
Stanford or my counterpart at the University of Washington and ask them questions about how are you treating this topic or you know what are you dealing with in terms of your, your biggest issues. And she was tremendous in a bunch of ways. One, she helped me understand how to navigate the culture, not just of UVA, but the culture of higher ed. She, at that point, was the president of Ikubo, uh, encouraged me to get involved in different organizations, which I did, and, and even today, sit on a few boards of uh, different institutions in higher education, and uh, showed me kind of how it how it was to kind of work smartly as a boss with the board, with their peers, and with their people. And probably most importantly, made me feel, I guess I can say valued, right? It was a new role. It was one that I think she was trying to get started. And I always felt like she was invested in the success of what I did and in my success. And maybe in the, I guess, the final measure of any good mentor, uh, a mentee should feel like that mentor is invested in their success. And she definitely made me feel that way. So Yokeson Reynolds was a tremendous mentor for me. Uh, I'll mention a few others. So Mary Lou Merkt, who was the former CBO at Furman University. I was introduced to Mary Lou through, I think it was Sakubo. And Mary Lou was the, she had been a CBO at, a, at schools in Virginia. And so she had a, a good network in Virginia, but I was introduced to her and and she was just the most kind of welcoming generous person I think I'd run across, right? Always happy to discuss her role, what she thinks is important. I mean, at the point I met her, I was at the point where I was starting to entertain, you know, making that jump to CBO, but wasn't sure what it involved and, you know, was I ready for it and those kind of questions. And she invited me down to Furman for two days and said, come shadow me. Let's look at, you could see what I do and you could ask questions and meet people and just seeing what she did. And I think more importantly, how she interacted with her people was enlightening. A good example is we were there and we, we went to visit different departments and I talked to people who reported to her. But she took me the one night to like a like a fair, right? It was like, you know, food and activities and whatnot because one of her employees was, was running a booth where I guess they were selling food or whatnot. And the fact that she would take time out of her schedule to make sure that she went to this event to support her employee was eye-opening for me. It's like, oh, th- this is how you want to treat your people. You want to kind of show them you're not just concerned with what they do at work, but you're concerned about them as people. And she really helped me with that. And then over time, as I entertained different offers, I would you know call her and say, hey, I'm, I'm considering this, or I have this offer in front of me. And she was really a good sounding board to help me understand you know, what I should be considering, what questions I should be asking, right? Is it is it a good move? Is it a bad move? And, and she was just tremendous. So Mary Lou Merck was a great uh, mentor as well. And if I could list one more, I would list uh, Brett Sweet at Vanderbilt University. I think Brett had done this podcast, like one of the first ones, perhaps, of um, CBO Speaks. But I think Brett is probably one of the kind of the smartest, uh, I think, kind of the kind of most well-engaged CBOs I've come across, right? Brett kind of knows the industry. I consider Brett to be one of the best, if not maybe the best CBO in the industry. And I think as any aspiring CBO or existing CBO, you want to surround yourself with really good people who you can go to for advice. Now, some of that advice can be very helpful. So here's a great example. And this is why I love Brett, right? So when the role of uh, Princeton CBO came available, of course, recruiters call people and they're looking for names and they're asking people for advice. They called Brett and they asked Brett, I assume they asked Brett if he'd be interested and Brett said no. What Brett did say to them was, if I could hire anybody as a CBO, I'd hire Jim Mateo. And I think that was a tremendous vote of confidence and endorsement. 
that had the recruiters thinking to themselves, oh, well, we need to talk to Jim Mateo. And, and, you know, again, that's a great role for a mentor. One, you need to believe that's true. But if you do, to kind of be that advocate for your mentee is a tremendous role for a mentor to play. And Brett played that role. And I, I really appreciated that. In fact, Brett and I still talk um, to this day. We we connect every so often to kind of touch base on topics and how we're doing and that type of thing. So, you know, those are three people who I, at least in my career, have had a tremendous influence and I really appreciate it as mentors. And in terms of mentoring people that are coming up under you, are you, what are some things that you would suggest for people when they're considering to be a mentor to others? That's a great question. So I think first off is, you know, one, there'll be a lot of people asking kind of for your advice. And I think advice can be given in a number of different ways. So there are people I'll run into who may ask me a question about the role or a role they're considering uh, or advice. And I'm happy to give that any time. I think to really mentor someone takes time and a commitment. So you need to, you know, like any CBO or you know, kind of executive needs to do is, is think how you want to spend your time, how much of it you want to dedicate here. So you need to be a bit choosy on, on who you mentor and, and why. And I think the people I've mentored have been one, uh, people I've known well, people I've invested in already in my career. I, I hope I would I hope people would say this who I've used to work with, uh, who used to work for me, that they consider me to be a mentor, right? So as they face their next opportunities and and they have questions, they'll come to me and, and they do and ask questions about, you know, what do you think of this role? Do you think I'm ready for it? What should I be asking or considering? So one place I like to kind of channel my mentoring is to people who I've helped grow up to this point. And then there are others who you just kind of, um, you know, for whatever reason, either meets, whether it's outside your organization, through professional organizations, who you think either have potential, um, deserve an opportunity, or, or kind of showing you something where you think to yourself, this person should really be a CBO, if not today, at some point. And I think like most mentors, you want to invest in people that have possibilities, that have potential. And so when I talk to people and understand kind of who I think is, you know, the next generation of CBOs, uh, they're the people I like to mentor, where it's, you know, I think a lot of people have that potential and maybe what they need is just someone to invest some time and to commit to their success that they need that to make the next jump. Because that's what I think happened to me, right? When I made my jump, there were people willing to commit their time and commit to my success that if not for that, I may not have made that jump. So I try to channel that back in the same way. Awesome. So what does your future look like in higher ed? You know, it's, I'll tell you what I, I know I want it to look like and what I, I'm not sure it'll look like, right? So what I know I want it to look like is, you know, I've been enrolled a little over three years. I think there's still a lot I need to learn. Right now, my future is about becoming a better CFO. And I, I want to do that in a number of ways, right? One is talk to some of the best CFOs and, and see how they do things and how they approach things and learn from them. Uh, two is exposure. And exposure comes from things at work. It comes from conversations. It comes from engaging in groups like Nakubo or other professional organizations to kind of broaden your horizon. And I do think really to become a better CFO or CBO these days, it becomes more and more, you know, and I'm asking myself this question, how do I start to create networks and connections outside of higher ed? I think we're fortunate in higher ed that the role we serve isn't that dissimilar from, let's say, a corporate CFO or someone else. And there are things they're doing that I'm sure I can learn from. So as I start to expand the work I do, uh, I want to make sure I'm connecting with a broad network and not just 
an inside higher ed network, but also an outside higher ed network. So that's part of what I want to do in terms of what comes next. What I don't know and what I don't try to prescribe is, you know, what's the next job, right? So um, I know that I love my role here at Princeton. I'm not looking for anything new. And I'm not trying to define like, you know, what I'm doing here is getting myself ready for the next position. Um, that's just not something that really, at least at this point in my career, is something I'm that interested in or focused on. It's not to say that, you know, five, seven years down the road, something comes up and it's interesting and, you know, it's a nice opportunity. But um, my career has been probably marked by two very long stints at two organizations. And I find that those long stints are very helpful in understanding and kind of immersing yourself in those institutions to understand how they work, what makes them tick, how you contribute or how you can contribute at a greater scale. And that, to me, doesn't lend itself to a quick, you know, three, four-year term and then hopping onto something else. So at this point in time, it's growing in my role. It's not growing into the next role. Right. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts for us, Jim? Yeah, Donna, thank you. Um, so final thoughts. Uh, I would say a few things, I guess. Um, one is, um, you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are looking for probably some insights, right? Maybe can they learn something from an existing CBO? And I would say a few things, right? I mentioned earlier on that, of course, you know, if you're looking to kind of make this move, uh, it's good to be informed on what to expect, right? Kind of that look before you leap approach. So build your network. Uh, there are many, many generous people in higher ed who are happy to, you know, mentor or provide advice. Uh, be selective on who you seek that advice from. So you may have a sense of where you want to go next. If you want to go to a public school or a private or be within a certain state, seek out those people, seek out the advice, build your network. There's probably no better way to build that network than volunteering. So find a professional organization, whatever it may be, and volunteer, right, beyond committees, beyond boards, and you'll make those connections. Second is, uh, you know, be kind of known and build a reputation for something you're really good at. So if you're a budget person, you know, build a reputation as being one of the best budget people out there. Uh, build a reputation as somebody who is not against expanding what they do and seeking out different chances to grow. And then I would say, thirdly, um, you know, when I think about, you know, what, what is your, when you go for an interview and you're kind of up against other people, what what is your edge, right? Is your edge, so to speak, um, your personality? Is it your talent? Is it your ability to communicate? And I think, you know, many of us, I, don't, I, I can't think of anybody who would say, I'm as good of a communicator as I can be, right? There's always ways to improve that. So I would focus on that as well, whether that's through communicating in writing, communicating through data, presenting. I mean, those are all key qualities, especially now. And so if I could throw maybe one other plug out there, I would say, you know, one way that I think I've upped my communication game uh, is through Toastmasters International. So I remember being in, in uh, the corporate world, I was in there maybe five years, had the opportunity to do a few presentations, and boy, I struggled, and they were not good. And I thought to myself, you need to do something about this. And so what I did was I went to a local community college who was offering a speech class, and I realized I'm not going to become an expert in uh, you know 15 weeks, but I figured, let me start somewhere. So I went there, and actually, at the end of the class, uh, the person who taught it was uh, a Toastmasters member. And he said, if you're interested in this, come to a Toastmasters meeting. And I've been a Toastmasters member since 1996. And so I would say to people, go to a Toastmasters meeting. You owe it to yourself just to check it out. Maybe it's not for you, but maybe it is. But if anything is kind of 
springboard in my career or given me opportunity that I may not have had. I credit a lot of that to Toastmasters. So if I'm giving any advice, it's take one, you know, go to one Toastmasters meeting and check that out. That's great. I love it. I love it. I love the shout outs. I love that. So thank you so much. You gave us some valuable information today. I really appreciate your time, Jim. Well, thank you, Donna. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks. It's brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks on Apple Podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Jim Mateo from Princeton University, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. <laughs>